Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. On Wednesday, the European Union broke years of political deadlock, striking a landmark deal on migration as negotiators worked through the night to agree on the overhaul of the bloc's asylum procedures. The breakthrough was hailed as historic by EU leaders. Ageliki Dimitriadi, the head of the migration program at Eliamep, joins me to look into this new migration deal and break down what it means for frontline states like Greece and Cyprus. Ageliki, great having you back on The Greek Current. Thank you for having me. Ageliki, the EU just broke years of political deadlock agreeing on a new migration pact for the bloc. Is this, as many have labeled it, a historic deal? I would say yes. Uh, it is a historic deal, and uh, mainly on two fronts. First, it's the first political agreement on a major legal reform on asylum that we've had for almost a decade. The effort began with the new agenda on migration back in 2020. That went nowhere, really. And we're now in 2023, and we're finally seeing negotiations bearing some fruit. Of course, the question is at what cost? Um, and this is, I think, the second reason why this is historic. Because for all the um, counting of success by politicians across Europe, and I'm not minimizing the importance of political agreement and, and the compromise that took place from various member states, But at its core, this is a pact that takes significant steps back on safeguarding the right and access to asylum. Fundamentally, it is grounded on deterrence, which is a policy and an approach that has been proven ineffective time and again, and yet it is being repeated. So I think the willingness that we're seeing of all parties, of all member states, to compromise in effectively reducing standards rather than improving them, I think that's historic. I think it's the first time that we have this at the union level, this willingness to take a step back. And, and I think the implications of this will be felt for, for many years to come. What does this agreement then, Ageliki, which still needs to be formally ratified, call for? You know, let's get into the details a little bit. What are the major points here? This is a very lengthy and complex reform, uh, and it has different components. But there are certain elements that sort of run through the different legal documents. So overall, there is a tendency to weaken reception and asylum systems. It strengthens the dependency with third countries. And that's because it heavily relies on the, on the neighborhood and beyond, so to speak, to do Europe's job of keeping migrants out of European territory. And that also includes asylum seekers. It invests in speedier, faster screening, processing of asylum seekers and actually all irregular arrivals at the external borders. It creates border detention centers, accelerated deportation for rejected asylum seekers, which in principle, it's not a bad thing. But again, this feeds back into the reliance with third countries. And this is just, you know, the general theme of, of, of the pact. For me, there are three issues that are worth highlighting that are also of importance to frontline states. The first is the introduction of a fiction of non-entry, as we call it. Throughout the procedures from the moment of arrival, asylum seekers are not basically allowed to leave the border area. And they are not juridically granted entry into the EU. What does this mean, this fiction of non-entry? It means that while they remain on, obviously, EU and national territory, because it is what it is, From a jurisdictional perspective and from a juridical, from a legal perspective, these border facilities will be outside full EU and national jurisdiction. What this will translate into in practice, it looks like multiple morias along the border areas. So this is something that is of immediate impact, especially to a country like Greece. 
Um, and to remind our listeners, Moria was a reception center on the island of Lesbos. Yes, and, and it was destroyed by fire in September of 2020. It hosted one of the largest numbers of irregular arrivals, way above capacity. So this replicates a little bit the system of hotspots slash camps across border areas. The second issue for me is the solidarity mechanism. And this has been surprising and not surprising at the same time. If you recall in the early discussions of the PAC, the assumption and the intent was that solidarity would be flexible but mandatory and then it would entail relocation, which would then become mandatory in cases of crisis. That's out now. That means that the solidarity mechanism is significantly weakened because mandatory relocation no longer exists. Instead, member states who choose not to accept refugees must provide frontline countries or first-line countries with financial and or material assistance. That can translate into multiple ways, but at the end of the day, it does not include the physical relocation of people. And this kind of alternative form of assistance has also been tested in Greece since really 2015. And we have seen that it doesn't actually work. It doesn't improve the conditions on the ground. and It doesn't facilitate, especially if the numbers are increasing. And this is, this is crucial. This is something that basically is one of the major, I think, flaws of the PAC. And the third issue is that it now normalizes exceptions. This is uh, an agreement that essentially allows for multiple scenarios to play out that entail derogation from the rules whether it's in the form of crisis, instrumentalization, or force majeure, as it's labeled in the pact. And by force majeure, for example, that would be the pandemic, which we have all already experienced, obviously. So the pact normalizes a series of scenarios and says, well, if these scenarios, which are not very clearly outlined, by the way, and, and they're not described in detail, they're quite vague. And it's also clear that what scenario is in place will come down to political agreement rather than necessarily objective criteria and standards, uh, which is also problematic. So the pact says, if you have a scenario playing out in a member state, and we agree that this is a scenario that's happening, crisis, for example, scenario, so large numbers, uh, or instrumentalization, a case of the Polish-Belarusian border that we have seen in the past, then a series of exceptions from the rules will apply, which impact, first and foremost, of course, the asylum seekers in the territory and border areas, and they impact them negatively. The problem, though, is that I think the drafters of this, of these bills, have not imagined the possibility that we might have more than one scenario playing out simultaneously at the Union. So having a crisis scenario in the South and an instrumentalization scenario, for example, in the East, in which case we suddenly end up with an EU where the member states have to apply their regular asylum procedures but at the same time, different asylum procedures for the member states that are affected. It's not possible uh, to do. It's, uh, it will result in utter chaos and it will push countries once again to violate the rules. So I think these are the, the three major problems and issues and reforms that are included also um, in the pact. Agaliki, Greece has been at the forefront of Europe's migration crisis since 2015, while We also know that Cyprus has recorded the EU's highest proportion of first-time asylum seekers relative to its population last year. What's the view from Athens and Nicosia on this agreement? I think they have seen this in a a positive uh, light. Obviously, I'm not privy to the political negotiations that took place, but my impression is that Athens is happy to get the crisis-enforced majeure exceptions 
I think they did not expect mandatory relocation to go through. My impression is that they didn't really push very hard for it because after a certain point, it was clear that it was a little bit of a lost battle. They did push and they did support the provisions for exceptions and derogations because, of course, this is something that Athens and Nicosia, to an extent, are interested in. They got the financial guarantees, whether it is in the form of the solidarity mechanism or in the form of the punitive measure for the member states that refuse to relocate people. They have to pay 20000 per individual. And they also got more funding for security infrastructures in the form, again, of, of solidarity. So although I'm not sure that there is a full-scale realization, and, and to an extent that's normal because it's too soon, of how this pact will play out in reality and what this will mean for frontline states. I think at this point, considering the difficulty of the negotiations and the really big gaps between what the North, South and East member states wanted of the Union, I think Athens and Nicosia are happy with the, with the compromise. Ageliki, this deal comes just six months before EU elections and Polls have been showing a surge in support for far-right anti-immigration parties. Does this make the timing of this deal all the more important? Yes and no. I mean, it's important because, as I said to you from the beginning, there has been we have been in discussions for some kind of reform really since 2015. And, you know, it's a little less than a decade that this reform comes in. So, of course, the, the timing is crucial. But at the same time, it's not. And it's not because... If we want to be honest, the the pact is so complex legally and also bureaucratically, and we're still at the very early stages of it. As you said, this is a political agreement. We still have to see this political agreement transformed into law that is voted by the parliament and then transposed by the national parliaments. So we're looking at least at a year before this is fully formalized. The elections are in June, which means we're not going to see the full effects. We're not even going to see half of the effects by the time of the of the European elections. And because it is so complex as a reform, and because it has been in play for so long, I'm not sure that most EU citizens quite understand what it means to have a political agreement on the new pact. They understand that there is a political agreement. So, okay, we're moving forward with migration and asylum reform, but the details and how this may impact their respective countries or not, I don't think this is something that they will be familiar with. What I think is important in terms of timing with the elections coming up is that this is a political agreement that can play very well into the hands of far-right parties. And I say this because for a very long time, mainstream parties have co-opted the discourse concerns and to the extent proposals of the far-right on migration. They talk and see migration as a problem, as a threat. And by the way, both of these are repeated and reflected in the pact through the weaponization argument, instrumentalization argument. And it's also strengthened through the repetition. And I mean, this was evident also in the press conference presenting the political agreement that we need rules. The implication is that we didn't have rules until now on asylum, which is actually not true. We had rules. We had a legal system that was in place. It's just that member states, many of them, chose to disregard it. And they were allowed to do so for a very long time. Um, so I think the deal can be useful, unfortunately, for the far right in, in utilizing and saying, look, everything that we argued for, migration is a problem, it needs to be curtailed, restricted, and prevented. Now, mainstream politicians are adopting. So why vote for them, not for us? And frankly, um, it's it's a convincing argument for a portion of voters. And we have seen this playing out already in various members. 
Angeliki, I want to turn us to Greece because amid negotiations in Brussels, this week we also saw Greece's parliament overwhelmingly vote, despite protests from even within the ruling party's right-wing faction, to give migrants three-year permits to tackle labor shortages. Does this get to the heart of how complex you know, this question of migration is for member states? Yeah, I think it does. And, and it's partly because you have these conflicting policy slash discourses. So on the one hand, you have, as I said, member states that want to restrict and curb migration. But on the other hand, they do recognize that they need to attract and retain migrant workers. And they tend to present this along the lines of irregular versus legal migration. We don't want irregular migration, but we will welcome legal migration. And to an extent, they're right. But the problem is that it's not that simple or linear and one affects the other. So we saw this playing out now with, with the um, reform that the government passed, which was a positive one. You know, and this is something we need to stress. This was a positive step. It was in the right direction. But we saw this because the opponents of, of the reform said that new democracy was regularizing migrants and that this would serve as a pull factor. And it's interesting that the government rushed to explain that actually there will be very strict limitations in place and people will not be allowed to bring their families. They will enjoy very limited benefits how it applies only to those that are in the country for some time rather than new arrivals. So they tried very much to stress that we're not trying to render Greece a country that would be open and welcoming to migrants, while at the same time they acknowledge that they need migration. They actually need a lot more than 30,000. The, the, you know, some of the figures that have come out are talking about hundreds of thousands. So... Uh, and and this is a, a an internal conflict that's been playing out also in other countries, and 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 I think this shows the complexity of the issue, but also the problem of presenting and talking for so long about migration as a danger to society and as a threat to society. It then becomes harder to sell it as a positive phenomenon, especially when one needs to do so, as in the case of trying to attract labor work. Ageliki, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks again for joining us and happy Thank holidays. Thank you for having me. Happy holidays. In other news, Greece will send a Hellenic Navy frigate to the multinational force led by the United States that will maintain unfettered access to the Red Sea for commercial ships, Defense Minister Nikos Dendias announced on Thursday. Operation Guardian of Prosperity, in which 10 countries, including the United States, the UK, Canada, France, and Italy, have already expressed an interest, will aim to protect merchant vessels sailing in the Red Sea that face a threat from Houthi rebels. Iranian-backed rebels based in western Yemen have announced attacks on ships from countries they consider hostile and have already seized one merchant ship and launched missiles against three others. Finally, Israel and Cyprus agreed on Wednesday to pursue ways to set up a maritime aid corridor to Gaza, a move Israel said was an important step toward disengaging economically from the enclave it has invaded to wipe out Hamas militants. Israel's foreign minister was in Cyprus for talks on the corridor, proposed by Nicosia in early November. It will be subject to a security inspection coordinated by Israel, an Israeli foreign ministry statement said. Cyprus, the closest EU member state to the Middle East, has offered to host and operate facilities for sustained aid directly into the Gaza Strip once the devastating war between Israel and Hamas ends. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.